Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. theater lovers both out and proud and on the dl and welcome to broadway breakdown a podcast discussing the history and legacy of american theater's most exclusive address broadway this is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape broadway as we know it today both for better and for worse it is called a little sondheim music and it is dedicated to the musicals of one mr stephen sondheim i am your host matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the broadway podcast hosts with me today is what we like to call an anomaly on this podcast this is someone who is not in the broadway world he's not really of the musical theater world but he is a good friend of mine and he knows music like he this this kid knows his shit and on top of all that, he's just really sweet and he's got an accent to die for. Very, very, he just rolled his eyes at me, but it's true. It's very sophisticated, very Mr. Darcy. Every time he speaks, I feel like I'm on the BBC and I just want to hold him forever. But unfortunately, he's on the other side of the country because he hates me. Please welcome my good friend, Mr. Noor Pratama. Hello, Matt. How are you Hello, doing? Hello, Noor. I'm well, thank you. <sighs> Yeah, it's, uh, I'm based in LA. Um, it's uh, quite warm today. I think it's like 71 compared to New York, which is yeah. quite hot, cold, I heard, so. Very cold and windy. And windy. And windy, okay. I think it's been windy too, but definitely we have a much... You don't better. know wind, okay, bitch, fine. Unless okay. it's 35 <laughs> degrees and you're walking up Park <laughs> Avenue and that wind blasts you in the face because it hates you, bitch slapping you. <laughs> so, Nor. Just so the people out there understand what I mean when I say you know your shit, what are your uh, musical credentials? Where have you studied music and for what exactly? Okay, um, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> so I was, um, uh, uh, I'm a classical composer. I was studying composition at uh, the Juilliard School in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was when I was in uh, New York City studying there when I met 
Matt, uh, we were at the uh, the New York City Gamers Chorus together. Uh, and uh, since, uh, yeah, <laughs> and since then I continued on to uh, Berkeley College of Music in Boston, um, uh, studying uh, composition for uh, uh, film and TV. That's, that's been really fun. Um, uh, unfortunately, everything's been remote because of the pandemic. So I'm mm. studying all the way from LA. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, LA is uh, where I want to be uh, for this pro- uh, profession because, you know, film and TV, it'll happen in Los Angeles. So it's very true. Yeah, exactly. Um, you did one composition that I really liked. What was the string quartet where the one with the cello was slapping? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh, that was a cello solo piece. So that was a, oh, the cello. Solo so I thought, why did I think it was a string? No, you, oh, sorry. You did one that was a court, uh, string quartet or maybe it was a I, trio. Uh, I, that was a string quartet, yes, but it didn't have the extended techniques such as the no, slapping. The cello slapping was a separate thing. That was correct. But um, also just a bit of my background as well. I grew up in Indonesia. And so I learned uh, Indonesian um, traditional music. I was grew up in Java. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just uh, this piece that Matt brought up is very inspired by Indonesian music. And that's why the extended techniques I thought were very appropriate with the, uh, with the piece. Yes. Um, I have many memories with Noor on the train. Sorry, guys, I'm eating as we discuss this. <laughs> Nora understood. We discussed this before we started the recording. Um, I basically came straight from work and then didn't have enough time to eat my lunch. So I'm being very rude and I'm eating while I talk to Nora about this musical. Uh, for the rest of you out there, you can just think of this as um, ASMR. But yes, Nora, when I met him, was a Broadway novice. He knew a couple of things, but he wasn't super knowledgeable. And he very innocently asked oh do you think you can help expose me to some more musical theater and if this were a sitcom that would have been where I turned to the camera and like gave a side eye and the audience (laughs) would go ha 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 because lord did I and we would ride the train because we both lived uptown at the time and we would ride the train back from rehearsals and nor would uh without his ipad and start showing me music uh start showing me film scores while we would listen to it and he would like have me follow along with it and, <laughs> and like dissect like certain moments which is why i knew you'd be so right for this just uh, being such a music geek right there so my apologies on that no, <laughs> you know you probably wanted it, a quiet I, no, ride on the it. train <laughs> no i super super loved it because the way you are about film scoring is the way i sort of am about musical theater in a lot of ways mm. and I'm really looking forward to uh, this combination. Nor, what is the Sondheim musical we are discussing today? Uh, so today we're going to be discussing Passion uh, mm-hmm. by Stephen Sondheim. It's a very lush, very romantic um, uh, musical that was uh, written by Stephen Sondheim and... James uh, Lapine. And James Lapine, that's correct, yeah. Um, Lapine did uh, not contribute actually... to the score. He just did the book and direction. Uh, but we'll be well, discussing right. all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it is very beautiful. Again, it's very romantic. The orchestration, um, actually, when I first heard it, it reminds me of an opera written by uh, Richard Strauss uh, called Salome. Um, and especially the storyline also was very um, reminiscent of that. I mean, Salome was this... Um, sort of troubled female character uh, in the story in this on opera. And that really reminds me of um, the storyline that happens in Passion. So uh, that was, and the music also is very similar, uh, has a lot of that romantic, big orchestration, at least in the recordings that I listened to. Um, uh, and yeah, so I quite enjoyed it very much. I'm glad to hear it. So 
you had absolutely no experience or history with passion before I reached out to you about doing this episode. Yes. That is correct. You knew of Sondheim. What was the Sondheim that yes. you did know? Was there any? You knew? Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, again, mentioning earlier where I grew up in Indonesia, unfortunately, musical theater was just not as popular in that country. So my exposure to musical theater in general, and especially Sondheim was just not enough, I felt mm. like. Um, and so uh, I came to the United States uh, in 2012, the first time. And uh, that was the first time I sort of heard the name Stephen Soundheim and the, uh, the the works that he's done in the past. Um, I, mean, I think the very first one was uh, Into the Woods, it's a very classic Soundheim musical. Um, really great, it was really fun. Um, and then I started learning more about uh, company, uh, I, I think there was one recital that I saw that had a song from Road Shows that was really fun. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I was also in a, um, I was in the uh, Los Angeles Gaiman's Chorus before uh, moving to New York, and we did numbers from Sunday in the Park with George, as well as um, the company. Yeah, I think we did Ladies Who Lunch, something like that. So it was really fun. <laughs> right, and we were rehearsing Ladies Who Lunch before the pandemic, so you knew oh, a little bit right. of that. Wait, so do you not really know any Sweeney Todd? Oh, Sweeney Todd, yes. I, okay. I was to say that's like that is in your wheelhouse. Why? So I, I was like, of all the shows to not know, I just, I just, it just come to my mind. But again, okay. uh, something about me, especially if I wanted to get into, if I want to familiar myself with a story, as I want trying to get as close as much experience as I can, and unfortunately, with. Uh, again, I lived in New York um, uh, only briefly. Uh, it was not for very long because I transferred to Juilliard instead of just attending a four, uh, four years there. Um, so I, I, I lived somewhere where didn't have as much exposure to theater, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, as yes, Todd, I knew, I, I know a few numbers from that musical, uh, not as much. Uh, and I, I, I'm still waiting for that one moment. It's like, okay, I'm gonna watch maybe uh, the recording of it or the mm. movie you know and mm. actually like uh, for some reason I just feel like I'm not quite there yet mm. uh, it's either I don't have the time or uh, you know and I'm also it, not on the I'm not on the coast with you to bust your ass to sit down and is, watch it that is very true uh, but I was also going to say uh, what uh, Matt has been so great is in all the knowledge of musical theater that you've been giving me I mean I, you know I, I think the audience needs to know that uh, you left me with a Spotify playlist with the you know with all these songs that I've enjoyed and loved since you yeah blessed me with this you know so <laughs> so yeah so it's, it's been really fun and I think that uh, I learned a lot from you uh, in the from the musical theater world so guys isn't he a mensch don't you just love this boy <laughs> um so let's get into it um because we've we have complimented each other long enough and we need to get into the nitty-gritty <laughs> of this damn musical so first of all my experience of passion is a little different from Nora's, but not that much different i was not super familiar with it for a very long time passion has this sort of reputation in the musical theater community nor is like it's still today probably the most uh divisive of sondheim's shows like even devoted sondheim fans are very much split on liking it or not liking it and we'll get into why later on but so because of that i'd always been sort of put off by it i always thought oh it's this somber show i don't think i'm gonna find it very interesting the music that i had heard sounded very off-putting um sort of you know sondheim 
has this reputation that I think is very unfair of he writes unmelodic music and his shows are cold and they're distancing and whatnot. And anytime I would think of passion based off of like the little bit that I did know of it, I was like, that's kind of the show that people think of when they think of like, oh, Sondheim and his weird music. But so because of that, I put it off for a long time. I knew one song, which is Loving You, which is sort of one of two big songs from this show. And then I just always sort of put off the show, put it off, put it off, put it off. And then I finally watched the recording of the original Broadway production 10 years ago when I was in college. Oh, yeah. And I didn't love it at the time. Um, <laughs> and in sort of preparing for this episode, I still don't really love the recording. I, I have come to like the show a lot more, actually in the last two days preparing for it, more than I have ever since I started listening to it 10 years ago. But I think what I realized is that there are other recordings and other interpretations of the musical that I like more than the original, hmm. um, particularly Giorgio's that I like way more than the original Giorgio, who um, we'll get into it. So that's my history with it. And as I said, I kind of had a major warming to this show about two days ago because I was ready to come into this recording being like, all right, let's talk about this little ditty. And now I'm like... <laughs> And I'm and there are still things about it that kind of turn me off and things that I don't think always work about it. But I got to say the finale to this thing hits me right in the ovaries. I just I got I was listening to this last night before I went to bed and the finale came on and I just started getting teary. And that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> oh, God, especially the I, I see now I was blind. That just fucking wrecks me. Um, but we'll get into it. We'll get into it more. So. <clears throat> For anyone who doesn't know, do you think you can give us a brief summary on what Passion is about? Uh, me? Okay, yeah. Um, so uh, basically, it's sort of this love story uh, by this, uh, uh, what was it, the Nami uh, captain or something like that? His name is uh, Giorgio. Giorgio, yes, an Italian. Uh, he may not be a captain. I think he's an officer. I think he's, I don't know. I think he was a captain, actually. I mean, I kept, I remember him being referred as. Uh, yeah, maybe he is a captain. Than, yeah. I'm not interested in the busyness of, of the voice. army in this show. I, <laughs> let's get to the sex. This show has sex in it. That is very true. But anyway, so um, yeah, this, uh, uh, the show sort of opened with uh, this uh, military man um, sort of uh, having a, uh, a love scene with this uh, uh, female character named Clara. And then, um, you know, he had to be uh, uh, posted somewhere, sort of somewhere rural in Italy. I think it was in the 18th and 19th century. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, so the, it's the late 19th century, I believe. Yeah, that is right. Um, and uh, while he was uh, being stationed in this uh, remote location, um, uh, he had the opportunity to meet this um, uh, another female character named uh, Fosca and uh, apparently uh, she was just portrayed as being very troubled and uh, very uh, I think it was epileptic too I think in yes. the story was, and, was... and and physically unappealing is that is that is very true yeah uh, it's very important to the show that Fosca not be um even plain like she or you know uh, unass uh, unassuming she has to like be a little grotesque right right that is very true um 
And uh, and then yeah, the story sort of went started there with um, uh, Georgia sort of going back and forth, um, and then there was some conflict with Clara, the first lady. Apparently, we found out that uh, yeah, girlfriend's married. Say it, yep, yes, yeah, exactly. It. With a child, with a kid, <laughs> she's married with a goddamn kid. Exactly. Um, yes, and she won't leave. She's willing to leave her husband but not leave her child for Giorgio, at least at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a major turning point in the show, which is, uh, you know, he he's in love with Clara, keeps writing letters to her and whatnot. And, and he sneaks away from uh, his platoon to go off and fuck her, essentially. <laughs> um, meanwhile, Fosca's like pining after Giorgio and just, doing really toxic behavior like really over dramatic yeah. like borderline gross behavior yeah 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 absolutely um, um but yes uh she declares her love for him and basically says you can learn to love me why i deserve love why don't you love me and over the course of the show Giorgio slowly comes to love fosca and move away from clara and uh he there are other complications that happen. There's a letter that happens. The letter gets discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that duel. No one dies from the duel, but Fosca does die Correct. because she's overwhelmed with the tension of everything that's happening around her. Plus, when she and Giorgio declare their love, they have sex, which she's too frail for. And <laughs> <laughs> Giorgio uh, basically kills Fosca. That's, you know... We're not, yeah. like, I, we're not saying spoiler alert this show is 27 years old uh, right but uh, yeah and the, sh- the show ends with sort of his uh, reading a letter that she had written to him right before she died and that's sort of how the show ends it's very quiet yeah. it's a very quiet ending yeah it's it's definitely very um, emotionally just very evoking and I thought that was uh, there's something very uh, pure and innocent about the love story in this play, I feel like. Um, and it's very, again, um, you know, just coming from the musical world, it's just very reflected in the music that Sondheim wrote. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I think you mentioned the song Loving You earlier. That was definitely one of the songs that really resonates. Um, and, you know, the the, the the orchestration just really... Uh, oh, what's the name? Uh, Jonathan Tunick, I think, was the mm-hmm. one who orchestrated the play. And I mean, just looking at the other stuff that he's done, absolutely right. fantastic orchestrator. And this it just proves, you know, how amazing he was at the job. So, yes, I knew that you would really appreciate Jonathan Tunick's work on this. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, we'll get we'll get into this with your rapid fire questions as well. So <clears throat> I'm going to do a little bit of history about how passion came to be, how we came to have it in our midst, and then we'll talk about the show uh, and the score and all that good stuff. Sound good? Sounds great. Great. Um, you, feel free to interject at any moment if you have questions or anything that interests you, uh, just to keep this from being a monologue. Although I do love to monologue, as you know. <laughs> you like being in the spotlight so I get that I got that from a long time ago it's no longer news it's no longer new to me so wow how quickly things turn 10 minutes ago this boy was complimenting me up the wazoo and now he's reading me for filth <laughs> love it so much okay so we're in the 90s and Sondheim has just come off of Assassins which opens at Playwrights Horizons and doesn't transfer to Broadway like they had hoped 
then it goes off to have a production at the Donmar Warehouse in London. So Sondheim is kind of in this middle area. He's won an Oscar for Dick Tracy for best song sooner or later. It's a bop. Look into it if you don't know it. And he also has the financial success of Into the Woods and the critical success of Sunday in the Park. Plus, you know, major productions of Sweeney Todd are now happening all over the place. There's one at the National that's happening around 93. And he and James Lapine are sort of looking for their next show to work on. And Sondheim comes back to an idea he had in the 80s when he saw this Italian film called Passion d'Amore, which is itself based off of a 19th century novel called Fosca. And it's, you know, the plot that we had discussed. And I have not seen the movie, nor have I read the novel or novella, it might be. But I've read up on the book and I've watched some clips of the movie. And it's, from what I can understand, the show is pretty faithful, at least in terms of plot, if not necessarily always in theme. But we'll get to that. So Sondheim sort of had an idea to turn that movie into a musical a while ago because he really liked the idea of seeing this woman who is not very appealing at least physically well no and attitude she's not a very pleasant human being like the the story very much challenges you because with, with stories like this where it's like oh you know she isn't what society would normally deem a conventionally attractive woman but she's so smart and kind and amazing and passion it's like no she's also kind of awful and toxic uh, <laughs> it's just about you know other things anyway right so uh, he always liked the idea of that, of this woman who's so unappealing in so many ways, kind of how this man who is like classic leading man status over the course of the movie falls in love with her. Uh, and he thought that would make a really interesting musical, but he sort of shelved it during the 80s because he works on Sunday in the Park with George instead, and then Into the Woods happens, then Assassins. But Assassins is over, and he and James Lapine are talking about what their next project should be. And he comes back to passion as an idea, but James Lapine has an idea for a different musical. He wants right. to adapt a he wants to adapt a memoir called Muscle. It's literally just are, oh, are you aware of it? Nor just nodded his head like, oh yeah, I love that book. I, I read it a bit, yeah, yeah. It's apparently muscle. It's like what what the hell is that? <laughs> the fuck is muscle? It's yeah, it's a memoir about this guy. Uh, the whole gist is essentially that he's this scrawny academic type who's sort of afraid of everything, moves to, mm -hmm. to New York City, afraid of everything. And he's uh, he walks into a bookstore because he's afraid he's going to get mugged and comes across a book on Arnold Schwarzenegger and gets inspired to become a bodybuilder. And that sort of becomes his whole life wow. only. Yeah. And then he like go it becomes an obsession and. Uh, enters a bodybuilding tournament only to come in second and then he has this like mental breakdown afterwards so of course james lapine's like obviously that's a musical <laughs> so at first they kind of thought that the both passion and muscle were not really big enough stories to justify a two-act musical so they thought maybe we'll make these two one acts and sort of make it a double build feature Right, that's right. Yeah, and they start working on muscle first. And immediately Sondheim's sort of uncomfortable with the material. He doesn't really think that he has a way into it. It's more modern New York that he's used to writing mm -hmm. to and all this other stuff. So they do a, a reading of it, held at Lincoln Center. And it's uh, the lead was played by my boy, Michael Hayden of Carousel. And they watch the reading. They're basically like, this isn't working. 
And they're like, well, why don't we go back to passion? And sometimes like, this is what I really want to write. So can we like start working on this? And what they realize is it, there's not enough material for it to be a two act musical, but there's enough material for it to be a hundred minute intermissionless musical, which yeah. doesn't happen very often on Broadway. That is, uh, It happens like it's not rare, but it's just, it's not often. So they start working on it and uh, at this point in Sondheim's life, he's in his first like real romantic relationship. So he's kind of feeling the love at the moment. That does not end super well because the dude leaves him. But there are two sides to every story. If you read the, if you read the Sondheim bio, you know, the guy had his reasons. Sondheim's not the easiest person to love. So while, so while Sondheim goes through this love and this heartbreak is while he's writing passion. That definitely informs the show a lot. They hold a four-week workshop at Lincoln Center in 1993, where they hold three industry performances with uh, a cast of, almost completely is going to be the Broadway cast, save one or two actors. And they are offered uh, Lincoln Center's off-Broadway theater for nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also offered a Broadway house by the Schubert organization. And there was sort of a inner conflict because on the one hand passion is a show that would work really well for a subscriber based uh nonprofit like artistic theater space mm-hmm. however Sondheim really is a Broadway guy and wanted the show to be seen by as many people as possible and because he kind of got burned with assassins not coming to Broadway he's like I don't want to take the risk of this opening off Broadway and ever transferring let's just open it on Broadway um, and they don't do an out-of-town tryout. They just do a long preview process during that season. And previews don't really go super well, Nor. I don't know how much you read <laughs> about it, but pre- these previews uh, are kind of infamous in the Broadway community. Do you know why? Hmm, I did not know. Lots of uh, inappropriate laughter. Oh, that is right. Yeah, I was reading something about that. Yeah, apparently he was... Uh, there's some laughters that was unexpected, that was unplanned in the play. And he was like, let's tone this down or something like yeah. that. Yeah. He says that they were very much taken aback by the initial audience response because mm-hmm. not only was it, were people laughing, people were very hostile towards Fosca and were like, you know, when she would collapse, they would be like, just die, Fosca. And there's one scene where she collapses and Giorgio almost leads her to lie there. But he comes back together. But while he's starting to walk away, the audience started to cheer. Mm. And Sondheim and James Lapine are like, oh, Jesus. we yeah. gotta... <laughs> And a lot of lines would get inappropriate Yikes. laughter. So basically, throughout all of previews, they had to finesse the dialogue so it seemed less modern and could seem more stylized. Um, and then they would trim some stuff and they would tone some of the acting down a bit. And they added Loving You, I believe, in previews, which was a oh. bit a major game changer for the show because it allowed the audience a more, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? I don't want to use the word likable, but I can't think of anything else, but a more likable insight into Fosta's yeah, yeah. mentality. Because uh, until then, every time we sort of hear her speak her mind, we're like, Jesus, this woman is so unpleasant. Uh, yeah. I think it yeah. really gives, uh, I was going to say, especially about that song, it's just, it 
uh, I was reading something about uh, Fosca just being very hard to identify with, um, you know, with the audience yeah. and um, uh, the fact that, you know, especially loving you and how she was just being so honest. And I think I mentioned this word earlier, innocent about, you know, her feelings, you know, it, 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 it gives a familiar feeling to the audience that like, you know, of course, like everyone has been in love. And, you know, I think a lot of us, um, have had un, you know loves that are unreturned you know loves who do we don't get back and yeah. you know either we get hurt from it and we learn from it and I think that is very relatable with the audience and I think that's what um, probably yeah uh, the fact that they added that was definitely a good choice and beautiful music you know just in general as well so beautiful gowns beautiful gowns um, they do they do alter a lot in previews uh, there was a lot of shock because the show does open with two naked people in a bed. And the mm -hmm. video that uh, I sent you, which was the recording of the original Broadway company, they actually toned down the nudity. You don't see really anything. It's all implied. Oh. Apparently when it was originally on stage, you saw everything. Wow. And there's a reason for it. And we'll get into that in a bit, but they definitely sort of had to, they had their work cut out for them during previews and yeah worked hard on it they trimmed it they added loving you all this good stuff and the show opened they they had to delay previews by two weeks uh, uh sorry they had to delay opening night by two weeks and um it finally does open on may 9th 1994 at the end of the 1993-1994 broadway season what its reception was and how it happened after that we will get to once we finish discussing the show so now that we've gotten here let's discuss passion okay i'm ready so as I mentioned just now, the show do open with two naked bodies. It opens with Giorgio and Clara ha uh, finishing having sex. And mm -hmm. in fact, when the show starts, it has, you know, the uh, drum revelry. Right. Is that what we call it? Yeah. Um, yeah, the the, um, the bugle call or something like that. Yeah, yes. the drums. But yeah. And then awesome. the full orchestra comes in on a very harsh note, which is meant to represent Clara's orgasm. Oh, okay. Yes. Sondheim wanted to, yeah, Sondheim basically, he wanted to bookend the show with two separate orgasms from different characters. And basically <laughs> one is Clara's, one's Fosca's, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, means Giorgio knows what he's doing. So yeah, the opening song is called Happiness and it's the two of them in bed. And the reason why they're sort of so exposed physically speaking is because this whole show is sort of about exposing yourself, but in, in different ways and what's more meaningful. And on top of this, you know, it's Giorgio and Clara talking about how much they love each other. And they sing, I thought I knew what love was, it, but I know that all that, all that love is, is just happiness because this is happiness, pure happiness. And they're them being naked is very important to, in addition to the fact that they have to sort of be prototypes of what, our society has always thought of as attractive, you know, chiseled right. features, porcelain skin, because these are two people who are kind of in love with each other's uh, physical attributes. And it's all about how they're sort of enveloping each other's bodies and just mm -hmm. sort of worshiping each other as like, you know, ugh. even whether they're aware of it or not, subconsciously, they're just like, oh, aren't we so hot together? Right. And yeah, yeah. that's very much the song. So much happiness. You are so beautiful. Happening by chance in a pond. Not by chance, by necessity. This is happy. By the sadness that we saw in each no other. No one else has ever felt before. Just, Just another, another love story. 
that's what they would claim. Another simple love story, aren't all of them the same? So something that Sondheim likes to talk about with um, duets and trios and group numbers is that he really dislikes when people are all singing in unison because half the time he doesn't think it's justified. He's like, no one, he's like, you can't ever get like nine people together in real life. And they're all thinking the exact same thing at the exact same time. It just doesn't happen. So he, if he does have unison, he tries to justify it. So, you know, there's usually overlap of some sort. And then usually something happens in unison, which is what happens with happiness, right? You know, Giorgio and Clara, it's, you know, this musical dialogue they're having, having, but then when they get to the happiness, it's, it's tied to later on in the show. And Giorgio is talking about to Fosca about how like to be in love is to sort of have your body and your mind in sync with another person that you're, you know, everything is synchronized with them. And which, you know, of course, Fosca hears that. And she's like, the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) But you see that with happiness where, where, you know, the love that these two have for each other is real. Uh, It's not, I don't think it's as deep as they think it is. And of course, Giorgio will come to realize that later on. Uh, But you sort of understand that with the fact that they do sing in unison so much in this number that it's like, they think it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's how people today are like, I want someone, you know, who likes these things and does these things, same thing as me. And it's very narcissistic. It's like, you basically want a life partner who's just like you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, we, uh, uh, I just had this conversation with uh, some friends just uh, very recently about, you know, uh, with all the technologies that we have today, you know, Instagram or Facebook or something like that, and also dating apps and stuff like that. We try to sort of, uh, some people are very attracted to somebody that basically look like them, especially us being uh, gay men, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's it, it, that I feel like happens just at a more um, a higher level that we, uh, wish to find uh, somebody who is um, not necessarily this, exactly the same like us, but basically like a more perfect version of us. And I think that's just sort of what uh, it's implied in this first scene as well. So yeah, not you, of course, though, right? Nor like you, <laughs> you look for the exact opposite of you. Sometimes I don't know. Opposites attract, right? But um, yeah. Well, I, I, it, but so I mean, it's that weird. Um, back and forth of love yourself and be confident in who you are, but also like mm-hmm. maybe don't date the mirror version of you. Like, of course. Yeah. Be with someone who compliments you because yeah, yeah it's, 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 cause it can go into sort of narcissism in a weird way, which is again, I think what this song is trying to sort of show is a weird kind of narcissism with these two and because the two aren't aware that it's narcissism it's not mm-hmm. super obvious you only kind of realize it as you continue with the show and then you come yeah. back to happiness and you're like oh and and this song is repeated throughout the show uh but because i am a basic bitch this is one of the songs in the show that i like a great deal <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah and not because it's naked bodies Mm-mm-mm. she's not that mm. girl no i just think the music's pretty the thing about this show, it's hard to kind of, it's hard to pick it apart, musically speaking, because there are very few songs, like standalone songs. It's mm-hmm. all more sort of, you know, pieces sort of scattered throughout. You know, we have the letters, we have moments of recitative that go back into dialogue. There are very few moments where it's like, this is a standalone moment of music. Yeah. 
Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll go all over the place. I also, I mean, I don't want to go sort of like beat by beat with this show, even though this is one of the more plot driven shows in the Sondheim canon. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't feel the need to sort of make our way through the show. We'll sort of go all over the place. What yeah. is what is your favorite song in this show? Would it, would it be "Loving um, You"? Uh, so I'm "Loving You." Uh, you mentioned that that was definitely really um, uh, beautiful. Um, there was one that was uh, uh, it's it's a little quirky, but uh, I I read. I think that was the title. Yeah, Fosco's um, intro song. Yeah, that was. The idea of escapism with that um, song, uh, I thought was just very interesting, uh, especially since I feel like that's very relatable with what we do, you know, in the modern world, you know, with our phones and the internet. And I mean, the fact that she admits that uh, very openly and even, you know, and people see her being very troubled and, you know, just, you know, uh, having issues and everything, but yet, um, she was being open about I'm escaping this by reading a book and I think that is a lot more than people today are willing to admit you know I mean you know we dive ourselves into um, you know movies and um, uh, shows and music and a lot of it is escapism so um, I think in terms of the the song that definitely resonates with me personally is that I do that with myself sometimes I would just tune everything you know, out in my surroundings, it's just like really internalize myself with a story and thinking about like, if I was in there. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that's that's one of my favorite numbers from the, it just reminds me when I was living in New York City, I used to go to the Met, the Metropolitan Museum. And I would actually listen to music that was related to what I'm seeing. So let's say I'm in the 18th century exhibit for you know sculptures or paintings. I was yeah. like, okay, what are my 18th century music playlists here? And what can I listen to to really dive myself into? I'm sorry, this is a very geeky no, thing. No, I'm obsessed with you. Do. I'm absolutely obsessed with you. Keep going, <laughs> keep going. But but yeah, so uh, there's, there's an element of escapism. And uh, I think it's just very interesting because you know, um, uh, there's so much distractions in our world today with so many things. And um, uh, the idea of escapism, I think it can be, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And um, in, in this case, in, in passion, uh, the fact that she was being open about it and, you know, she knows that her actual life was not that great with all the problems that she had and how she got to that situation, you mm. know, with the, the, uh, the, the Austria, yeah, exactly, and so, yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, so the fact that she was open about, and especially again, this story takes place in late nineteenth century. So uh, that is, you know, I mean, just applying it to that time period is just very uh, uh, eye-opening. Yeah, <laughs> for for all the unpleasantness that I sort of drag Fosca for being it's important to remember she is a very intelligent woman and she's a very brutally honest woman Mm -hmm. uh she's probably the smartest person in the show and she's the only person who's willing to kind of call it like she sees it and that's something that i really also really like about i read she she is very self-pitying in a way that makes sense she is a sickly woman with a lot of troubles and uh, is underestimated by everyone around her, not just because she's a woman in 1800s Italy, but also because she's 
by all their accounts, an unattractive woman. And therefore, mm-hmm. like the one value that they think women have, she doesn't even have. But we realize she's intelligent and that she's talented and she's skilled. She plays the piano. She reads numerous books. She's mm-hmm. highly articulate uh, and very uh, intelligent and creative, which, you know, she uses those means sometimes to manipulate and gaslight. But who hasn't <laughs> done that? You know, like we've right. all been there. Yeah. Now, I, and you're know, speaking about that song again, too, is that, you know, I um, actually um, uh, like copied and pasted um, the section from that song that I really like. It says, I do not read to think. I do not read to learn. Uh, I knew that I know the truth. The truth is hardly what I need, but I read to dream. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, thinking about it, too. Learning some uh, somebody else's story by being in that person's shoes it's a lot stronger experience than just reading about it and it's like, oh yeah, okay, this person experienced this. And I think what she was trying to do is like, she did say, I do not read to think, I do not read to learn. I, I think she still learned something from being, you know, from being immersed in these stories. It's just that she was putting herself in somebody else's shoes. She, you know, she was giving herself a chance to, be something else yes. and experience it. And, and, you know, you have a lot stronger sort of moment when you do that. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so when she says, I do not read to think, or rather I should say, when she sings, I don't read to think it is in response to Giorgio. It's the first time that they're meeting technically mm. speaking, because yeah, he yeah. has heard of her. She's the cousin of his boss essentially in this new right yeah that's this right, new yeah. regiment that he's now at and they're staying in this man's home and therefore fosca lives there as well and they're cousins and they're they're the only family they still have and she basically stays in her room all day long because she's so sick and she never has an, an appetite and you know most of the other officers find her unpleasant and Giorgio's has now heard of her a bunch and he finally meets her and they're alone at the table he's brought her a bunch or rather i should say he's lent her a bunch of books that he has for her to read because he's been told she likes to read. And she says, thank you for the books. Um, And I found one of them really interesting. And this one character was a big mystery. And he goes, well, you should have kept the book longer to meditate over it. (laughs) And then she whips her head around and she's like, I do not read to think. Um, It's, and goes into this four minute, like pissing all over the floor. I am telling you who I am and what I'm about and what life is for me. (laughs) in four minutes and I am leaving it all out on the floor and you learn everything you need to know about this character in these four minutes and what she's capable of because she goes from zero to a hundred in about 30 seconds (laughs) there is a flower which offers nectar at the top delicious nectar at the top and bitter poison underneath the butterfly that stays too long and drinks too deep is doomed to die I, I read to fly, to skim. There's also a moment in the song that is important musically speaking because it's what I call Fosca's trauma melody, which is something that Sondheim had sort of worked with already in Sweeney Todd, and I'll make the connection in a second. It's okay. in I Read, and she sings it. It's the, the line in I read, it's more of a variant of the melody, but it's there, which is that there is a flower with nectar at the top, delicious nectar at the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a variant on 
a melody that she sings another time, which which is when she's in the garden and she goes, I saw you from my window. I uh, noticed you the day that you arrived. And you learn it's the same melody that the Austrian count sang when he seduced her. And oh, her yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I call it the Fosca trauma melody line. And it's, it's something that Sondheim's really good at about having moments of your life that were awful for you stay with you in like not mm-hmm. super obvious ways, just like right. little pieces. So like Fosca's trauma doesn't totally define her now, it, but it has permanently affected her. And, yeah. and you hear it with, with that melody line. And when you hear the count sing it for the first time, you're like, oh, that's where she gets it from. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me, um, you know, especially uh, for those who are uh, familiar with uh, film or TV scores, um, you know, that is done quite a lot in mm-hmm. film and TV music, is you sort of apply what's called a theme sort of thing to a particular person or a place. Um, but it's definitely very possible. And, and, you know, this proves how effective it can be to also assign a theme to an experience, mm-hmm. you know, and so when there's even a hint of that experience coming back, even if it's just a little inside of it, then the composer can um, sort of bring that theme back again. So, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, from very mainstream film scores is, you know, from the, the Star Wars uh, films, um, uh, when uh, the uh, Darth Vader, when, she, when he was still very little and stuff, um, there was, you can hear a little bit of the Darth Vader theme when he was still little. So Mm -hmm. the audience didn't really quite know that he's going to become Darth Vader. We're still sort of in the story, but there's a hint that like one day he'll become that, you Mm -hmm. know? And and so it's not necessarily, I mean, in this case, yeah, it is a a theme from Darth Vader, but um, it is also the experience. Uh, And I think with this, you know, what you brought up, that was definitely a very good point is that there's a theme to that experience with the Count, and we'll get into that, uh, how the story uh, happens between uh, Fosco and the Count, and, but also, and how that affects her in the present, you know, quote unquote, uh, with uh, Giorgio. So. so this is why I'm happy you're my guest, because you are studying for film composition and you are sort of in that world and you study the films and you study these composers. Stop, uh, stop. Sondheim is a huge movie buff. And in fact, mm. he kind of writes with movies in his head. He oh. often says a lot of problems that uh, directors have had with him in the past is like, he'll write a song that is very visual in his head as a movie, not a uh, mm. scene from a stage show. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And he loves Bernard Herrmann a lot with and oh. who is you know who he kind of references with the Sweeney Todd score mm-hmm. he loves movies he loves movies and he loves movie scores and so with your knowledge of that you're actually more qualified than most people to talk about <laughs> Sondheim because you two are connected that way yeah um I mean, it's, it's definitely um something that I think a good composer or if somebody wants to compose for any purpose for if it's you know film or tv or concert or something like that I think it is important to have the imagination sort of the storytelling and whether that takes place you know as melodic lines or or rhythmic or an actual scene like Sondheim you know you just brought up you know I think it is very important and uh yeah, Bernard Herrmann's fantastic composer. I mean, um, all the stuff he's done with um, 
uh, psycho, you know, again, you, you hear that the theme and then the, um, I can't remember what the name of that specific theme from that uh, movie, but it is very iconic and that really brings you back to the experience. It, it was the, it was the lady in psycho who ended up being the one who was murdered. I'm sorry. It's oh, Jan- Jan- Janet Lee's the actress. I can't remember the name of the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the shower. This, rain, 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 rain. Well, yeah. not so that when when she was on her way to Bates Motel. Um, oh. you know, there's the music with the very heavy strings and stuff oh, yeah. that she Da-da-da. was driving. Yeah, and, and that's you know that's definitely um, uh, just a very iconic. But again, I'm back to what you're talking about is that it, the, the the theme can be not just places or people it can also be experiences and i think that's uh what's so powerful with this and sondheim used it very brilliantly so very much so uh since we kind of all been referencing it let's talk about it the what is called the flashback sequence where we learn about fosco's trauma yeah what led her here so in this we find out that when fosco was young she had parents who doted on her and said she was beautiful and it's told from Fosca's perspective while she's writing a letter to Giorgio, as well as Fosca's cousin who's telling Giorgio in the present. So we hear from both of their perspectives and you know what they sort of both take away from it. And what happened was as Fosca got older and her cousin was living with her and her parents, this young man found his way to them who claimed to be an Austrian count and was very handsome and essentially seduces Fosca says says to her I am in love with you you're beautiful I want to marry you and her parents are ecstatic and they give him her dowry and they get married and as soon as they go off he starts leaving her alone for long periods of time spends all the money she has to go back to her parents to get more money and drains their savings in uh over time And then she finds out she's in the market one day and some woman comes up to her and she's like, the dude you married isn't even a count. He actually has his own wife and kids somewhere else. (laughs) And like when he says that he's leaving on business from you, he's actually going off to screw me and he's left me and he's probably off to like have sex with somebody else now. So you are an idiot. And when she goes to confront him about it, he's like, yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what happened. I took your parents' money and uh, I go have sex with other women. But what he says is interesting because it, there's a truth to it when he says when he's like, let's be real here. I married you because you had money and you married me because I'm handsome. It's like women use their beauty all the time in, uh, during this era to get you know a specific good match from a man. Why shouldn't a man do the same thing? A man with no prospects, why shouldn't I do the same thing? Now, let's be very clear. I'm not condoning this man's actions. This man is a monster. However, He's very right that all Fosca really knew about him was that he was handsome. She didn't know anything else about him, really. She didn't have an inkling of who he truly was or like know anyone else from his life. So just sort of took him at his word because he was so handsome. And that's something that I think is interesting as we talk about her infatuation with Giorgio at a later point. But with that trauma, she comes back to her parents. Uh, They are now broke. She's sick they die taking care of her and the cousin is uh racked with guilt because he thinks that it's all his fault he brought the man into their lives Mm -hmm. and he they all were just so thrilled that a man would want her so they just sort of let her go off with him and then everything was sort of ruined which is why this cousin now is so tied to fosca and why fosca is so fragile both emotionally and physically um yeah yeah, talk to me about this flashback sequence because this is like kind of 
its own operatic sequence, I would say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I couldn't help thinking about how similar the this situation is with actually with uh, Giorgio and uh, Clara, because Clara is married with, you know, a spouse and a kid. So I think it's interesting. And I, you know, was wondering if the, uh, in the original story, uh, Passione d'Amore, I wonder if that was sort of intentional or something like that. Um, and, and you're right about the, um, the fact that uh, Ludovic, I think it's an count, right? Yeah, Ludovic uh, was, uh, you know, he was very you know, handsome and everything. And that was just sort of like, yeah, I used you for this. It's, I, I think we got to remind ourselves that the story takes place in Italy, so that is very Catholic and mm. you know um, very traditional, very religious in a way, uh, as well as um, the, uh, with Fosca being a woman and being pressured into that situation. I th I thought was mm -hmm. you know was definitely of course you know um, I, I felt like she had her reservations with being taken away. Uh, by um, by Ludovic, by the Count. Um, she and... even says in the letter when he's courting her that she had her suspicions at the time. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, she sort of, she uh, suppressed them. Yeah, um, and, and, and I think that's what's, this story really well sort of portrays with her being a female. And again, I don't know if it was intentional, but with the, with the breakdown that she was having um, versus Georgia was also having the same experience. You know, Clara was married with a child and- um, However, he's aware that she's married with a child. I, I don't know, we don't know necessarily the development of that information. To that is him, very true, yeah. But uh, it's it seems that when they got together, she was pretty upfront of like, hey, I'm married with a kid. Like we can't really meet at night, we can only meet during the day. That's when my husband's away and my kid's in school. And yeah, it's it's a little different, but it is, but there are parallels for sure. You're right about that. I've seen you at your window. Won't you stay for dinner? Do, yes. Count. I've watched you every day since I arrived. I had my suspicions. I had no suspicion. I chose not to see. The way you move, the way you gaze at the sky. For love had made me blind. How could I be so blind? Or what I took. For love. Within a month, he had asked for her hand. Signora Fosca has been married. Yes. Passion isn't an opera, but it is operatic. Right. You know? It's very melodramatic. It's very high emotions. And it's a lot of music that doesn't necessarily, uh, is not, can't, it's music that can't necessarily be confined to a moment. It all yeah. feels very fluid. And when I was reading Finishing the Hat, or actually it was look I made a hat with this one. Sondheim talked about how a lot of the lyrics in the show don't rhyme. They only will sort of rhyme in very specific moments. One of which is actually mm -hmm. my favorite song in the show, which is I Wish I Could Forget You, which is what's mostly referenced in the finale. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's a controlled and calculated moment. Um, I Wish I Could Forget You happens where Fosca, basically Fosca is... Uh, rejected by Giorgio, like harshly for the first time. Not for the last time does he reject her pretty harshly, but it's the first time that he does it. And she takes a turn because as the there's a doctor who you know is there, and he his job is basically to care for 
Fosca and he tells Giorgio in confidence, like, listen, it's very clear she's got the hots for you. And every time you reject her, she takes a turn for the worst and like doesn't have any interest in staying alive. So maybe yeah. like throw her a bone so my patient can, you know, do better from time to time. And keeps on sort of manipulating Giorgio into spending time with her and being kind right. to her. And so when she takes this really harsh turn and it's bedridden, he basically is like, go into her room and like sit with her for a little while because she could die if she starts giving up. So Giorgio does. And Fosca being Fosca, she's like, oh my God, I think you were, I didn't think you were going to come. Sit on my bed. Put your feet on my bed. <laughs> Lay your head against my head. Sleep, fall asleep with me. Write me a letter. Like it's, it's it keeps going where she's right. keeps pushing her luck. And it's it, apparently that was one of those scenes in previews that like just always got laughs and they didn't mean for it to get laughs, but I think you could make it slightly humorous. I think there need there you need to indulge some of the humor and passion. Otherwise it's just a little yeah. too much. Yeah, it's it's definitely very it can be very serious. And you know, I mean, uh just again the that that feeling of having love that is unreturned can be a very familiar feeling yes. for a lot of people. So uh, there's, you really got to be smart there in terms of like, not let's not be too serious here because I, this can be very depressing to some well, people. And humor is, and it makes sense because humor is a sign of intelligence really. Yeah. And Fosca is very intelligent and she makes a lot of wisecracks. And when Giorgio writes her the letter. So when the first time that Giorgio escapes to go off and have sex with Clara as much as he possibly can, he writes Fosca a letter that's basically like, stop being in love with me. I'm in love with somebody else. <laughs> and when he comes and when he comes back, they have this very tense moment. And she says, you know, oh, uh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm ashamed of myself. I let my emotions get the better of me. And he goes, not at all. I found your, uh, your attention very flattering. And then she looks at him. She goes, how indulgent you are with me. And <laughs> it's really fucking funny, but yeah. a lot of actresses and Donna Murphy doesn't really do it either. She, Donna Murphy kind of kills the laugh. She plays them much more serious, but mm -hmm. there's a great video of Judy Kuhn doing it at signature, oh. uh, not signature at um, Kennedy center. And I love Judy Kuhn. We all know I love Judy Kuhn, but she does, she plays that line for laughs and it's important. You need to give the audience a break every now and then. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's a good release. And as I said, it shows intelligence. So it's nice to see Fosca crack a joke from time to time. But anyway, <laughs> Giorgio meets her in her room. And I think you can definitely play that for laughs a little bit. Where she's like, thank you for coming. Sit on my bed. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, who hasn't been there girl. And right. so the, the morning comes and basically she's like, can you please write me a letter? I want like, write me this letter and I'll leave you alone. I just need a love letter. I know it's fake and you'll know it's fake, but let me just tell you what I want you to write. And it's this letter that's basically says, I wish I could forget you. And it's also like, I cannot love you, but I wish I could love you. And it's, it's, a, it's her way of trying to like make it sound believable, but also get what she wants out of it because she can't have it be pure like, Oh, I love you so much. I want to spend every day with you. It's it's this, uh, you know, I I wish I could love you, but I can't, and I want to love you, and all these things. And it's this gorgeous melody. And Sondheim talks about the reason why this is really the first song that has rhymes in it is because it's calculated and controlled. I don't know how I let you so far inside. 
It sounds like longing. It sounds like uh, unrequited love, which is what it really is. It's so something that I talk about with Sondheim a lot is that after West Side Story, he doesn't really write songs that are two characters saying, I love you and you love me. And isn't it fantastic? The best he can do is really in this show, which is you have Clara and Giorgio with happiness, but it's sort of, you know, a commentary in a way of, you know, this really pure, but kind of shallow love, right? It's not as real as it should be. And then you have the kind of love that Fosca has for Giorgio, which starts unrequited. And then when Giorgio reciprocates, it's kind of muddy water because it's unclear really if like he truly now is in love with her, if he's just been worn down or if he's in love with Mm -hmm. how much or if he's in love with how much she loves him. Uh, Because the song he sings to her first he sings to her earlier in the show is this what you call love like this stalking and like it's right. not like it's not because you're not attractive it's because you're awful like that's it's <laughs> right he literally says that to her he's like you don't he's like you don't get to blame your really shitty attitude and actions on the fact that you're not uh what most men would consider beautiful you are just not a good person yeah um and again like and the show really does lean into that when they're walking in the garden and he's like well maybe you could uh find joy in other ways like helping others and she's like helping others you would think she'd be like oh i help others all the time i go i teach the children how to read i go to the charity she's like Mm -hmm. like i've done that i hated it it's awful (laughs) it's like fosca like she's done what she needs to do all the stuff she's tried them all so yeah he's that woman in 30 rock that's like charity work sucks She's like, are you, where he's like, oh, being in love, you're at one with the other person. She's like, the fuck are you talking about? And then he's, and then Giorgio's like, oh, you know, it really feels good to help others. And she's like, no, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, you, we admire her because she is so unashamed about it all. And and that Mm -hmm. is part of how she sort of. I don't want to say courts Giorgio. She doesn't fucking court him. She throws herself at him every chance she gets. Yeah, Um, And it's so unabashed. But like at the same time, there's something admirable about like saying the truths that no one else wants to say. She's like, she's like, it sucks to be sick. I don't have this like newfound appreciation for life or have any insight. I don't like Mm -hmm. helping others. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so when Giorgio sings to her at the end of the show and he's like, I do love you. And she's like, why do you love me? And he's the song he sings is um, no one has ever loved me like you have. Mm, And and for my money, that's not really the best answer. Like, I love you because you've loved me more than anyone else ever has in a way that no one else ever has. It's like, how about I love you because of all the things you are like, you know, it's it's a kind of declaration of love that in its way has its own sort of toxicity and then the moment of the show that i think is pure like unadulterated i love you is when they quote her letter and i wish i could forget you in the finale but by that point she's dead and and he's like in an insane asylum so it's not like 
this wonderful, oh, isn't love grand? Pe- let people say we're in love. It's I love you and your love will live in- with me even though you're dead now. Like it's just very, yeah. you know? Yeah, oh, I, I had a thought in my head. I remember what it was, but it's it's definitely, uh, it reminds me of the conversation today uh, and people talking about, you know, consent. And I feel like, you know, like, is this really him f- feeling genuine affections or love towards this uh towards um uh, Fosca or is it just all the exhaustion all the you know the whole thing that happens with Clara and the uh you know the the affair and stuff and you know Clara basically I think in some time of story Clara was talking about oh um I can't be with you like you know now I'm gonna have to wait until my son is older or something like that to leave my husband you know and that is traumatic you know um and so so yeah there's definitely a question about consent here is like are you really like into it like did you sign up for this and are you all like do you consent with everything that's going on or are you just burned out from all the things going on in your life and you're just gonna like okay fine yeah I I think I love you and that's sort of like the last resort or something like this yeah (laughs) well so it's even so as I said I have not read the book but I was reading up on the book I would like to find Mm. the book and truly read it but from the way that it's described in the Sondheim biography and then some other sources that I found in the book, Fosca is pretty awful, like as a human mm. being. And the feelings that Giorgio has for her in the end are very complicated and very toxic. And the fact that, she, and she sort of has like infected him more than he's become in love with her. Mm. And when he has sex with Fosca, it's, the, so like the major change they make in the musical is that he breaks it off with Clara. She writes him a letter that says, I can't right. be with you the way you want me to right now. Let's keep doing what we're doing. And when my son, as you said, when my son's older, like I will run off with you, but I, mm-hmm. I can't lose my son right now. And he's like, enough of this. No, I reject <laughs> this in the book. Apparently Clara is the one who breaks up with him and oh, very much. And it blindsides him. And so he basically runs to Fosca and while he has sex with her, he has all these thoughts of Clara in his head. So it's a very, like, it's a complicated, like he's angry at Clara, but he's still in love with Clara. And he hates the fact that like he's with Fosca right now because he's still not really attracted to her, but she's who's there. And she like has infiltrated his mind. And when she dies and the duel happens, he, the story in the novel apparently ends with him basically like being a shell of his former self. Whereas in the musical, it's more that he's kind of just depleted and burnt. And as you said, burnt out. And I think that one of the issues I have with the musical is that they don't change any of the story really, but they try to change the attitude of the story. Mm -hmm. And while the music is often really beautiful. And as I said, the finale always just gets to me now. Like every time I've I've now listened to it, it just hits me when I really, I still don't totally buy the last 30 minutes of the show because they are trying to pitch that Giorgio has truly fallen for Fosca in this really pure and deep way. And it doesn't really click for me. And maybe if I saw a different production with two really exceptional actors, I would buy it. I still don't totally. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about, again, the idea of possession and something like that. This is definitely a very possessive 
behavior that um, uh, Fosca was portraying. And, and again, just, I, I feel like he just succumbed to it. And whether mm -hmm. that is just sort of depleted and burned out versus just like, okay, I'm having sex with you. I'm not thinking about you sort of thing. It's, it is, it, 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 I can definitely see why it is controversial. And, you know, if people, some people have really uh, uh, feelings very against this one, because, you know, it's, 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 it's not the kind of, making the connection with the very first scene uh you know it's it's almost like oh this love's very like passionate you're talking about it being very warm and uh being sort of an exemplar of what love looks like and then towards the end it's like okay okay i understand that but this is also not what it should be look like you know what it should be like so yeah <laughs> the, the way that i originally described passion so when I was talking about all the romanticism that isn't always there in a Sondheim musical, or at least what I should say is unadulterated romanticism, mm -hmm. because I do think he does write love songs, but it's not usually like a, I love you and you love me. It's an, I love you and you're, and you're nowhere to be found or you love me and I can't take it. And passion I used to say on the series was in you, uh, uh, you love me and I want you to get away from me show mm, yeah but now yeah. that i'm but and i think that's something that's sort of part of it but then towards the end it's like i love you and i'm dying like it's <laughs> it's not a like i love you and isn't it wonderful it's like a, i love you and i'm about to fall apart uh yeah it's very poisonous in a weird way it thinks of it as an obsession and as a fever to be had uh, yeah, which the is vulnerability that, that was setting the key. It's just, it just really shows that vulnerability. I mean, you know, when uh, I think in any love song, it's just any feelings of love is, you know, you do want to portray that vulnerability. You know, you're giving your, a part of yourself up so that you can be loved by somebody else or you can love somebody else. There's always going to be risk, you know, when you love somebody. Yeah. And, uh, but I think in this case, it's just very... Yeah, the vulnerability was sort of like the main feature of that, um, of that. Delivery. Yeah, well, that's sort of, again, that's sort of Fosca's main um, playing card is like, what you have with me is that I'm 100% honest with you and I'm willing to give all of myself to you. Mm -hmm. She even has that line, she's like, would Clara give her life for you? I would gladly. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, is not the most woke of statements, but it is a very honest statement. It's, it's Fosca's yeah. truth. And who are we to necessarily judge her truth? But, you know, I think that the show does a much better job of dramatizing how obsession can lead to feelings um, or like how uh, persistence can start to lead to obsession because mm -hmm. there's a musical device that they use where the regiment sings Fosca's lyrics throughout scene transitions. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can hear it on most of the cast recordings. You definitely see it in the in the film. Although I think in the original production, I don't think they, they don't stage it in the way that I think they should, which is that I feel like what it's supposed to show when they sing her lyrics again, because it happens every time she sings, you know, a different lyric. So she sings, I read, they have their scene, she collapses. And then the regiment, you know, sings a little bit about the town, which is her mm -hmm. lyrics about the town. And then after the castle, they sing, you know, the, the uh, they hear drums, we hear music, be my friend. And they, they do it throughout the show. And what I feel like it's supposed to represent is how Fosca is weirdly getting in Giorgio's head and 
for all the times that he says he find he's repulsed by her and he just wants to be with Clara, she's her words are finding a way in there and sticking in there. Yeah. And allow and that is sort of what plants the seed to, uh, that eventually grows into him becoming obsessive about her. And Clara even says, you know, like you change, you only talk about this woman. I hate her and I've never even met her because that's she's all you talk about. You're mm-hmm. cutting your sick leave off early to be with her. Um, and I don't know if any productions have really emphasized that about with when every time the regiment sings Fosco's lyrics, because I feel like it's it should show the audience that despite what Giorgio is saying, he is thinking about Fosca. All the time I watched from my room, thinking we'd meet, thinking you'd look at me, thinking you'd be repelled by what you saw. Don't reject me. Don't deny me. Understand me. It's almost like she always, she she knew all along that it will happen. You know, she just needs to plant the seed very carefully and take her time until uh, he gets to that point, which then unfortunately she dies. Yeah. Uh, But at least they got to, you know, get together for (laughs) There's a song that uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes used to sing. It's a big famous song. It's called I'm Gonna Make You Love Me. And basically, you know, the I'm gonna make you love Oh, I think I've heard it before. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like Sondheim heard that song and he said, but what if I made that a horror movie? And that's passion. (laughs) Because it's it's a really, like, it's a really weird statement in general. It's supposed to be like a cute little thing of like, Mm -hmm. just you wait, like, I'm gonna get you. Like, you don't think you're gonna love me. Like, I'm gonna make it happen. And you were bringing up about consent earlier. It's, you know, sometimes no means no. And it's a, this shows a weird situation where it's like, he does kind of just get worn down and constant, constantly chased after. And because of circumstances and who he is, and he is a sensitive person. We like, we established this early in the show when he's sending letters home to Clara, he's like, I hate it here. The guys here are all meatheads. And like, I cried on the train when I left you and I read and Fosca's like, I realize that you're a sensitive soul. I am too. But it's just, it's, I don't know. It, it all, it all feels a little calculated on her part in a way <laughs> where it's because she talks about like, I saw you when you arrived and she's like, maybe it was because of the way you spoke to everyone that made me like fall for you. And I think that's, bullshit she fell for him because he's handsome he's and every even the men in the in the uh barracks agree they're like he's a very handsome man Mm -hmm. uh and fosca is attracted to him first and foremost so when she and it feels very uh hypocritical when she's like you can't get past my looks and it's sort of like you're kind of only obsessed with him because of his looks uh You know, and then he said, and then like he shows you an ounce of kindness and all of a sudden it's like sinking your hooks in and it's like, don't you worry, boy, I am going to wear you the fuck down. Uh, I very, I'd be very interested to hear opinions on this show that are much more complimentary of Fosca because I don't dislike her as a character. I don't even totally dislike her as a human being. As I said, I, there's a lot about her that I admire like her, mm-hmm. her brutal honesty fucking love it yeah i, I laugh again i laugh every time where she's like give to others <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's just truly makes me giggle uh, but uh, yeah so you're saying i was gonna say one well actually two things that came to my mind is that one note that i think is worth mentioning is also 
the fact that other things going on in uh, Giorgio's world wasn't very going very well either. And that's probably, I, yeah. I feel like that's probably one of the reasons why the conditioning was so, was that successful. It's because, you know, you're talking about um, uh, in, in the, uh, in the station, in the military station about uh, he was not happy with the people that he worked with. And, you know, there was really, oh, and then also the whole thing we're going to with Clara and not being able to see her and everything. Mm-hmm. And that sort of puts, uh Giorgio in this sort of weird state you know and 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 yeah. um that again the, the the key vulnerability was what I think contribute to and, and how this whole thing happened is that you know he was sort of in a, in a place where he wasn't feeling great about what he was doing you know with his job and being so far away from uh, the person that uh, he loved. Um, so in this vulnerable moment, um, uh, Fosca was able to sort of penetrate uh, her way into um, his mind. Um, yeah, so yeah, so I think that was... Oh, also you're talking about honesty, the brutal honesty that uh, Fosca had. I mean, thinking about it, it's, I feel like it's kind of makes, it, it, it pretty much makes sense how she pretty much had nothing else to lose, you know? Mm. I mean, uh, we, we, I think it's safe to say that she was at the very low point, you know, uh, in her life, you know, with just like the, 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 the count, you know, being gone and being very poor and no parents, you know, to support and just living with uh the the colonel um, and a bunch and, of other men who and a bunch of other men exactly who can't stand her <laughs> so so i think yeah it's like if i see myself living in that sort of situation it's like i i'm not holding back you know like yeah. i I'll, I'll just say what i think and i don't have any i don't have to worry about losing anything because i or did <laughs> so yeah I, I have lost it all that is something that is an interesting counterpoint with her and Clara is like Clara is too busy wondering what everyone else will think of her like mm-hmm. being with Giorgio is the most scandalous thing she's ever done yeah. but it is all very secretive and she there's so little she's willing to give up to do it um it is what makes her happy but I don't think Clara's life is all that bad she has a child she loves she's clearly got money she keeps showing up in beautiful outfits and can pay for this second apartment for her and Giorgio to fuck in and it doesn't <laughs> seem like her husband's awful to her I think she just doesn't love her husband uh, at least from the little that we know and so there, she, because she has so much to lose there's so little she's willing to give and Fosca's like I literally have nothing right I'll just give my all uh, yeah, and they even say it when she's like, "It's um, I know it's improper for me to like say what I feel, but fuck it." And <laughs> yeah, no. In some ways, Fosca is goals, and in some ways, we need to only pick apart some of the things that Fosca does yeah. and take it with us, not all of it. Yeah, um, and again, I think it's just you know sort of uh, confirms message that you know I mean a lot of times when you think about love stories, something like that, there's always like this character who is like the perfect you know like the princess or the prince that has everything and and it's basically has the best qualities the best look best personality uh and in this story it it's it's more human and i think i really like that it's you know um uh, you know all of us 
I mean, definitely not to the extent that Fosca was, but, you know, um, no one is perfect, you know, and, and I mean, hopefully I'm against, you know, uh, cheating on, you know, your partner or something like that. Sure. But at the same time, uh, yeah, like you were saying about Vosca being very honest. I don't know. That's just what I, what I had in my mind. I love I'm it. Sorry. I was just sort no, of thinking fine. about something else. Uh, let's talk about the other big song in the show. Loving. Okay. Okay. Loving. Yes. So as I said, this was a song that was added I believe during previews and it's when Giorgio is sick and he's been ordered to go to Milan for 40 days to sort of get the sickness out of his system. And he's on the train getting ready to leave. And he's like, so over Fosca because she's gotten him sick. And lo and behold, she shows up on the train with a suitcase because <laughs> of course she does. Um, and basically he's like, leave me alone. And she was like, no, I don't like that you're sick. I want to make sure you're okay. I'm going to sort of go to Milan. I'm going to sort of keep tabs on you. And he's like, this isn't going to make me love you. She's like, this isn't about you. She's like, I she's like, I love you. And because I love you, I am going to make sure that you're okay. I'm not doing it to make you love me. Or that's what she says anyway. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, it's like, whatever you do, don't go in this room. Like it's, it's <laughs> if you, sometimes you could say it feels a little bit like that, but it, this is actually the one scene where I'm like, Fosca is very honest and very, uh, I actually think very uh, on the nose about love, which is like sacrificing parts of yourself for others. And it's not about always getting something in return. It's just about doing something for the person you care for mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, watching over them. And when he, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but he says essentially like, basically it's like stop loving me and then she sings loving you which is you know the first lyric is like loving you is not a choice it's who i am and it doesn't give me a reason to rejoice you know it, i like that lyric a lot where she's like it's she's like it does but it gives me purpose she's like it's this isn't something that makes me happy i'm not thrilled that i'm in love with you but it gives me a reason and mm -hmm. and she's like and that's something that is important because before this i had no reason Right. Um, which is which explains also why it has so become all encompassing with her, because if this is her only thing to hold on to, like to toxic or not, she's going to hold on to it for fucking dear life. Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. Loving you is not a choice. And not much reason to rejoice, but it gives me purpose, gives me voice to say to the world, this is why I live. You know what uh, reminds me of, um, <laughs> I think we had this conversation a long time ago, uh, but, uh, oh, and Sunset Boulevard, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, uh, you know, Paddle Opone was in this, um, you know, she was doing the With One Look and there's another song of hers in that play. But this reminds me of that, the style, you know, the sort of the sweeping strings arrangement, oh, just the orchestral arrangement of it. Uh -huh. um, I definitely, um, I, I would give it another listen, but it's just very, it's very moving. And the ethereal, as you put it, the ethereal vocal that is in the song, uh, 
it's I think what sort of creates the dreamy feeling the like it's almost like a fantasy the fact that not everyone has the ability to be that vulnerable and to open up that much to um uh to the to feeling love you know mm-hmm. so it's it's very uh, what what do you call it it's been a long well week. so when talking about the lyrics it there is no real wit in these lyrics there's no uh humor no hyper intelligence it's all just mm-hmm. very plain spoken because right. it is very honest and she's not trying to wax poetic on it she's just you know this is it you asked me why this is it um and she's not trying to present it as anything it's not or something that would be more palatable to him uh which is, I think, very important. I don't get Sunset Boulevard vibes from this, but that's because for me, Sunset Boulevard is a little more bombastic in music. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was talking specifically about the song. Uh, if yeah. you've heard like the With One Look uh, from that one. one. Look, yeah, but even that, like, I think maybe because With One Look, the melody line does kind of float a little bit, but it is yeah. a bigger song. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yes. yeah. It, it doesn't give the same charm, but it, I think... Uh, in terms of uh, yeah, that melody line and then um, the, how would you say, the energy that comes with that, I felt yeah. for some reason it just reminded me of that song. So hopefully that's okay. <laughs> no judgment whatsoever. Uh, people on this pod know my thoughts on Sunset Boulevard already, uh, but I don't have any major opinions on people's opinions necessarily. <laughs> just, just I disagree. That's all. Um, yeah. So I want to kind of close out talking of the musical with our finale which is when Joe is you know wherever he's at sanatorium probably sanatorium sanitarium Uh, sanatorium sanitarium I believe sanitarium is like sanitary that doesn't make sense is is that not what you call it like sanatorium s-a-n-a-t-o that's what it is sanatorium like you know like a madhouse is that where he's at or is it like a hospital well, I think back then it's sort of both, right? Same thing. I guess. Well, like, you know, one is for people who are like sick and injured and one is, you know, for people that they can't identify. Yeah, I guess uh, so. But it's not sanitarium because it sounds like sanitary. I'm like, what? Do you just clean crazy people? They clean out their brains. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We don't live that in that time period. No, so I, think I, it's, did, I it's never fun. said I was from 1800s Italy. I never said I was smart. I simply said I was pretty and that I have a clavicle like Fosca's. There's a difference. Nor. Fine, fine. God okay, you got it. me. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my god. You bring a friend onto a podcast and he starts dragging you through the mud immediately. Oh my god. Okay. So <laughs> we get to this finale, and Giorgio is told Fosca's dead. Uh, the duel didn't result in any casualties, and he sent a box of things of Fosca's in addition to a letter that she wrote to him while while she was close to death. And what's interesting is that the letter. As I was listening to her section of the letter, where she's talking about how once they had sex, everything kind of went into shifted in perspective for her. And all the toxic attitudes that she had and the sort of anger and vitriol that she had and that she acted with disappeared because it all came from the root of the fact that she had spent so much of her life feeling like she was unlovable not unworthy of love she always felt she was worthy of love but that she was unlovable and knowing that she had love and that she was worthy of love 
changed everything for her and everything. And she says in the lyrics, like every, uh, you're everywhere I look, everything looks different. Everything has purpose and everything is uh, right now. And it sounds it, like, it almost sounds too pat. Like it's like a little too um, wrapped up, but it makes sense in a lot of ways because love is what led her to being the shell of the human that she once was, but then mm-hmm. love is also what kind of saved her right before the end. Um, you know, it's, it all connects back to this one thing. And if it sounds sort of simplistic, it kind of is, but that's also si- sort of at the core of Fosca. You know, she's this hyper-intelligent and talented woman and her only real desire is to be loved, uh, Yeah, you know? And so for her to finally happen with the man that she supposedly loves, changes everything for her and so it's nice to read in that letter that at the end of her life she you know had this reprieve that i really appreciate and then they quote the letter that she made giorgio write to her but the lyrics actually are true now and this is the moment where like i break down it's when the entire ensemble comes in and they start to sing that i don't know how i've left you so far inside my mind and the harmony they go into and then it goes right into Fosca saying and should you die tomorrow another thing I see it's so beautiful to the point that like it all it defies any logic or reason like you could hate the show up until then and many people have and I'll get into a thing about that in a second (laughs) many people have hated the show but that ending music at least on a purely musical level affects you in a little bit It sort of shows the um, the humor in her. She's like, isn't it ironic as I'm ending my life, now I want to see more of it. Uh, <laughs> she has another line like that where she talks about early on that there's a castle, ruins of a castle somewhere um, in, the, in town. And she wants to show it to Giorgio. And she was like, I really love it, probably because it's ruined. And <laughs> that's right. It's, I mean, again, Donna Murphy does not play it for laughs, but I think it's a funny line and should mm get a laugh uh it, help, it also would help the audience be more on fosca's side uh as an, again not making her likable because she does a lot of unlikable things but you need the you need the audience on a theatrical level to have a reason to continue to watch a character and if you yeah. give them even like a snippet of something uh that they can connect to they will latch on for a lot longer uh, and if you really just are like, no, I want him to watch someone who's just awful from start to finish, then <laughs> they're going to resent you and they're going to boo when your character doesn't die and they're going to laugh when she's trying to seduce someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sondheim was like, I think it's because, you know, she wasn't conventionally beautiful. She was, we tried to make her super grotesque and ugly. And they were like, so guffawed that she would have the audacity to go after such a stunning man and have him fall in love with her. I'm like, that's not really it, Steve. It's because you just made her so unlikable. They didn't have a reason to want to watch her. 
Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, there's uh, one, um, Stephen Sondheim said something about um, sort of, I don't know what he said. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just blank right now. Um, but she was saying something about the character, something about not, re I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I just thought about something else. Think, baby. Think, think, think. That's it was from the about. interview with, um, who is it? Uh, and then at the end, and it's like the second half, um, uh, Lapine joined, Lapine. 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 Oh, Lapine it was on uh, Charlie Rose, I think. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, this is the sort of part when he was talking about the, um, you know, just so unlikable and how can you be so sure that, um, Giorgio will fall in love with this, you know, character at the end. I can't remember exactly. It's blank line. Sorry. Well, I'm so glad you brought it up since you can't follow up on it. Wow, you're a wonderful guest to have. Oh my god. I don't regret. I don't regret this one bit. Uh, yeah, no, it's just edit the whole thing, my part, the whole thing out of the oh, show. I'm, I'm just, editing you out of this you. entire thing. It's just me. Um, yeah, no, I I'll just, sing something with that redeeming. <laughs> yeah, sure. I already sang I'm a little just, bit. I should say. Okay. All the again, and it's mostly in terms of like the original presentation of Fosca that I really kind of object to. I, there are, I've watched some other interpretations online, Judy Kuhn, a little bit of mm -hmm. Natasha Diaz. Uh, I've listened to some of Maria Friedman, who is who you listen to. She was the, she's the London Fosca. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. um, and there these are other Foscas that have uh humanity and humor to them, which I think helps the audience connect with her a bit more. So even if they don't always necessarily like her or uh, you know, don't necessarily root for her. They can at least understand her a bit more, which is important. You don't have yeah. to have your character likable. You just have to understand them a bit better. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I have nothing left to say on this finale other than it just, it just kicks me right in the gut. Uh, I, and because I've just started warming to passion, I don't want to say it's my favorite of the Sondheim finales, mm. but it's, close it's getting up there yeah, yeah, yeah um it and it ends very quietly which is very uh brave of them and i talked earlier about how sondheim wanted to sort of bookend the show with two separate orgasms he doesn't quite do that because this finale does, is not <laughs> where the orgasm is fosca's orgasm happens like five minutes before the finale right yeah yeah it's you know she giorgio takes her to bed after singing no one has loved me as you love me and then he has the duel and then there's the finale uh, so he gets close to it, but yes, there's, there is a parallel there. Um, and what's interesting is when he tells her that he loves, he loves her and she starts to kind of cry and shiver. He's like, what's wrong? She goes, I'm afraid. He goes, of what? And then she starts to sing all this happiness, uh, <laughs> when there is so little time. And it's, it's interesting how they take the same song and it like, it be, it's about a moment that's much more true and yet it seems so much darker <laughs> but i guess that's sort of passion for you they're like oh you you want to be in love honey fantastic get ready to suffer <laughs> it is uh, honestly though in all seriousness that is actually very true is that again what i said earlier like if you loving somebody whether things go right or wrong it is the vulnerability it is opening yourself up to what potentially can hurt you and you know and that's that's why it is risky and it is, it could be dangerous, you know? So yeah. I think, um, again, this show uh, really gives me that 
it's, it's, it's a strange yet very familiar feeling about loving somebody and um, the vulnerability and the, the risk that comes with it. So, yeah. Um, it reminds me of, and we're going to wrap this up now. It reminds me of uh, this couple that I knew in college that have since been married or they, they got married and they are still married, I should say. But when mm -hmm. they were in, when we were in college, I remember uh, my friend, Sarah, who, have you met Sarah? You never met Sarah. I don't think so, no. Uh, my friend Sarah and I were talking to one of these guys in the couple and we're asking sort of about their relationship. And he said, every time we have a fight, I can't go to bed that night until we've like resolved it. Mm, uh, yeah. He's like, like, like it, it, it feels cathartic in the moment to like argue with him. And then like, we'll walk away and I'll like go to my room. He's like, and I literally lie in bed, unable to sleep, tossing and turning, like my stomach hurts and I have to like call him up so we can resolve it. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a connection, you know? That is also, yeah, a rule I impose to myself as well. It's like, you know, can't go to bed feeling, you know, resentful or having any grudge, holding any grudge. Like that is not, that's, that's not a good night's sleep that. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I hold grudges all the time and my skin has never looked better. Any final thoughts on passion before we uh, go to the legacy and wrap things up? Um, I finally remember what, from that interview, you know, it's on time being like, you know, you can't really control what um, uh, the audience will think or will like or dislike. Um, but you can make that very clear. You can you can be clear with your intentions of what you do in the play and I think that's what's so important is that you know um it is very clear that um you know like you said she was unlovable but uh, at the same time there are things that we can relate to her and uh, I think that's sort of that's what made the play happen that's what made it successful is that okay yeah there's this awful person who was manipulating her ways into you know, getting this affection and love from this uh, male character that um, we can relate. And I think Sondheim and his team was very clear about what they wanted to get out of that and what the audience feels. So yeah, that was a weird audition, sorry. <laughs> so Passion, as I said, opens uh, in May, May 9th of 1994. And its reviews are actually pretty solid. They're all they're all mostly strong if not all effusive praise uh it's a lot of you know this is the most emotion in a Sondheim musical oh my god this is so romantic but they all are like there are things that are still wrong with it so and they all have different reasons for what's wrong some of them go you know the love story doesn't really work or they say it's a little too over dramatic or they have problems with casting no review is ever like oh yes this is uh, the one it's clicked it's all good now they all are like there's a lot here to love and there's a lot that is bumpy but because of the season that it's in they're like we will absolutely take it because this is the season where it's up against Beauty and the Beast, Cyrano the Musical and A Grand Night for Singing for Best Musical and only up against Beauty and the Beast and Cyrano for Best Score. Can you guess if it wins either of those Tony Awards? Musical and Score. Um, Beauty and the Beast and Cyrano the Musical. I think it did. I mean, it had to. It, was... it did. It won both of those Great. things. It won musical, score, book, and lead actress for Donna Murphy, who played Fosca. It nice. closed, uh, I think, in January, making it the shortest run for a Best Musical winner. 
but oh, no. oh. yeah which is um, you know honestly it ran for almost 300 performances which for a show like this in 1994 makes sense yeah. um yeah that was a year where more of the revivals were dominating but that is for another day it uh so as i said wins best musical it goes on to open in the west end in 1996 where it runs about the same amount of time about six months more or less it is nominated for Best Musical at the Olivier's, but doesn't win, loses to Martin Gare, which is like, okay. Um, Maria Friedman does win for playing Fosca. Basically, Passion is not really done again in New York until there's the concert with Patti Lapone and Audra McDonald oh, that I yeah. sent you. And it's done at the Kennedy Center as part of a Sondheim festival. And then it's done for real, for real at the Classic Stage Company in 2013 with one Miss Judy Kuhn. It's also done in London a few years ago at the Donmar Warehouse, which is the production that Sondheim thinks is pretty definitive. He loved the Donmar production. He thought that it like really, the show just like clicked with that one. Nice. And, probably, and, he, and he says that the actor who played Giorgio, David Thaxton, was like the reason for it. Uh, if that production made it Giorgio's story, not Fosca's story, which is, mm. I think, important. Um, it's hard to necessarily say what the legacy is with this show because it is not the most produced of Sondheim shows. I wouldn't even say it's like in the middle area of produced Sondheim shows. Like this is not a Follies or a Company or a Sweeney. It's done. People do it, but it's rare. And it's very, as I said, it's still very divisive. There are only really two songs that people ever sing from it. One is Loving You. The other one is I Wish I Could Forget You. Mm. Uh, fun fact, my grandmother, who you've met, Nancy. Yeah. Yes, she saw this in 1994. My grandmother used to work for Lincoln Center. She was part of, uh, yeah, she did a lot of uh, PR for them. But it also required her to see a lot of theater. And my family likes theater anyway, so they just go see stuff. So she saw this in 94 and she hated it so <laughs> much, like the most. She hated it so much to the point that anyone who was in that show, it was like 15 years until she finally was able to like let it go. So like Donna <laughs> Murphy, Nanny did not like Donna Murphy wow. until very recently. And, and she'll say, oh, well, I just don't care for her as an actress. So I'm like, no, Nanny, you just hated passion. <laughs> There are other things that she's been good in, you know, uh, and she, for so, she wouldn't like Marin Maisie for the longest time. Uh, I forget. We finally saw something with Marin Maisie where she finally was like, you know what? This is the first time I've liked her. And I'm like, it's been 13 years since passion. Fucking let it up. <laughs> wow. It's, but like Fosca with love and Giorgio, there's no rhyme or reason. It just really emotionally uh, negatively affected my grandmother. She just wow. so intensely hated it Oof. that there's, there was no, uh, logical reason behind why she felt the way she felt for so many years. <laughs> I, I definitely felt like, you know, it can be, uh, I, was gonna, I said this word earlier, like controvert, controversial because, you know, uh, especially back then, uh, it's, I don't know how big uh, Passione d'Amore was, but um, this for being as public and uh, as, um, on your face, I think, uh, because it's on Broadway, you know, uh, yeah. definitely affected that. So yeah, once once something goes to Broadway, the uh, expectation changes a right. lot. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I will. I will say in terms of Broadway, I think the biggest legacy that this kind of leaves behind it is the it opens the door for more operatic works to come back and for chamber mm. musicals to come back because when 
passion comes in, it's sort of coming off the tail end of the mega musicals like Les Mis and uh, Phantom, which are, you know, sung through, but I wouldn't necessarily say are uh, chamber opera like musicals. It's not, it doesn't really go down that road. It's more poppy. Uh, this allows works like Land of the Piazza to come through and, oh. Great, Com- and Great Comet to come through. Uh, yeah, it's there's there's a lot of good to be had from Passion. And I think it's one of those Sondheim shows that always will just spark a debate about the music, about the characters, about the mm. story, how successful you think it is, how unsuccessful you think it is. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see a production of it, which leads us to our rapid fire questions, Nor. Oof, okay. Are you ready? I think so. We'll see. First up, the Sondheim rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in this show? Uh, I read to live in other people's lives. Read about the joys, the world, the dispenses to the fortunate, and listen for the echoes. It's very, like, contemplative. I don't know. It's very imaginative, I felt like. And that's what I do, too. I do that with music. You know, I would, like, listen to a piece of music and just, like, what was this composer thinking mm-hmm. when he was writing this? And I feel like I want to get into that space sometime. You know what mine is? What? Not a lyric. It's a line. Give to others. <laughs> Every that time. sounds like you. That sounds like you. I think <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really not surprised. <laughs> Fuck you. So <laughs> next up, I had a dream cast. Who would you most like to see in a production of this? Any singers that are like, I would just love to hear them sing this score. Uh, the opera people. Okay. It doesn't do. Does, does it need to be or doesn't? It doesn't need to be. No, but I know that you probably you probably know more of them than you would have a lot of Broadway. Yeah. Singers. Okay. Oof. Maybe I can talk about it afterwards. But I recently got really interested in Renee Elise Goldsberry. Ah. So. I don't know. It's gonna be interesting to hear him, uh, her do who him, her doing this. I don't know. As who Fosca? Um, I mean, she's a stunning woman, but yeah, let's 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 ugly her up a bit. <laughs> I don't know. There was this. Um, uh, do you know uh, the show documentary documentary now on Netflix? Yes, where they do the company parody, the co-op. I, I just that saw episode. that. I just saw that like yesterday, and so that's why that's like, oh, I want to, I want to listen to her doing stuff from Passion. That'll be interesting. So that's why this happened. That's why. Wait, this that's happened. that is how you know Renee Elise Goldsberry is from. Co-op? No, 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 no. I just that I was just thinking okay. about sure her because I just saw that like yesterday. Yes. So. and she sings uh, "My Home Court." Yes. Yes. And the, and the and the brown and the beige. And the beige and the brown. Yeah. yeah. So good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll take that. I'm sure she will too. Um. Well, Audra McDonald did um, uh, Fosca. No, she um, did. Uh, she played Clara. Clara. I'm sorry, but yeah. uh, Paddle Lapone. I mean, I don't think Paddle Lapone was hideous. So mm. they they first one of the major problems with Passion. I don't say major problems. I would say one of the major obstacles a lot of productions of Passion have is how far they're willing to go to make Fosca unappealing physically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, they cast these women who are just such stunning women, like uh, Donna Murphy and Judy Kuhn and, you know, Patty Lapone is a beautiful woman. And they basically like, they pale them up a bit and then pull them yeah. back. <laughs> they like put that, they put, give them very pale foundation and pull their hair back. And then they're like, see, look at her. Not very pretty, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. like you should look at the actress who plays Fosca in the Italian film. 
it's they mess up her teeth a lot more they give her more sallow skin they kind of put some craters in her face it's not it's they make her hair more stringy it's yeah they like they don't they don't hold back next question is god that's good of the sondheim shows you now know where would you rank passion personally for you Oof. okay um because I'm probably the most familiar with Into the Woods, I think that would still be number one, especially the storyline. I really do like sort of the, the variety that Into the Woods has music-wise. So I think that would number one. Passion would be number two. Okay. Uh, I would say, see, I'm not as familiar as Winnie Todd, but I think if I was familiar as Winnie Todd, I think that would change my mind. Well, we'll just have to get you familiar to Sweeney Todd, but as Please. it is right now. So right now it's, we have, um, of the shows, you know, it's Woods, Passion and Company. Would those uh, be the Company would be number three. Yeah, that's okay. right. Um, I, yeah, I'm not as familiar with Roadshow and Sun in the Park with George, especially since I know like one or two numbers from both, from those musicals. So uh, yeah, Sweeney Todd would be number four, I feel like. Okay. And then the rest would just be like after. The more... Oh. I will, I will, we, we're going to have to probably the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. No, it's your personal opinion. When we, we need to circle back to you at some point, Nora, as you get more familiar with Sweeney and Sunday in the Park and Follies and uh, you don't need, need to be that familiar with Roadshow, but maybe Roadshow if you're interested and then tell me where Passion ranks. If it stays, if it goes up, okay. if it goes down, be very interested to hear. Uh, final question. This one's a little tweaked for you because mm -hmm. you're my music man. <laughs> this one is called It's the Little Things, a.k.a. There Won't Be Trumpets. And it's asking you, Mr. Noor, how would you orchestrate this score to as few instruments as possible, but it still gives you what you want from this score? Okay. Um, the, the, the first one came to my mind, just thinking about a string quartet or maybe a quintet would be really cool for this, especially with the you know, the very romantic, again, I mentioned earlier, like the sort of the Richard Strauss, mm -hmm. uh, you know, romantic composer period. I feel like a, a string quartet would be a really good reduction of this. But then the problem that I ran into was the whole military thing, the drum and the trumpet and stuff. And it's just like, it's hard to recreate that with a strings, with strings um, ensembles. So uh, I came to uh, sort of like a, uh, a 10 to 12 piece uh, orchestra in my mind that the list I have will still keep a couple of the woodwinds. So with the flute, the clarinet, uh, we'll keep the trumpet and the horn because again, it's in the military. So I just have to. Uh, the percussion, he just rolled his eyes so hard when he said yeah. that. <laughs> the, the percussion, you know, the, the drum and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And then the piano, the piano can definitely fill in for like the, the harp and the celeste and the harpsichord. And then the violin, viola, cello, and bass. So, um, so yeah, so that's tiny. I was reading something about, I think when they first did the preview of um, uh, Passion, they only had the budget for like a 15 piece orchestra instead yeah. of, you know, what was that? Like, I think it's at 20 or 25. So I think at that time it was very limited, but I'm like pushing it down even more still. Yeah. Uh, there have been, I'm sure there have been productions that have done even fewer than 15, but yeah, it, yeah, in a time when, you know, orchestras were still 20 plus and most Sondheim scores with the exception of, I think, Sunday and Woods, mm. most Sondheim scores were a 20 plus orchestra. This is definitely a smaller sound, but it, the difference between this and like 
Into the Woods is that the sound for Into the Woods doesn't sound as lush as it does for Passion. So it's really fascinating mm. that such a small orchestra can have such a big sound. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really depends on how it's, you know, orchestrated and what effects you're trying. But again, it's just, I kept thinking about like, okay, even something as a string uh, quartet or quintet would do a great job. But you got the bugle calls that is like, okay, well, I don't want to have a violin play bugle call because that doesn't make sense. So yeah, well, it, trumpet it is. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe I'll direct a production where it makes sense to have a, a violin do the trumpet. I'll make it, I'll make it work. I'll make it work for us. <laughs> because as you said, with passion, without your string section, section, you ain't shit. So we got to have that string section. Yeah, no, it is. It is. I mean, that's what makes, you know, an orchestra as amazing as it is, is the string section is just so versatile. And, and, and again, passion, you know, and I, I'm so excited for you to show the audience, you know, the music from it, especially for those who haven't heard it, because it is Amazing. There's a it's lot gorgeous. of there's a lot of beauty in this score. Some weird yeah. moments, some weird moments as well. But yeah, yeah, a lot of beauty, a lot of beauty. Um, Nora, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for taking time out of your midterm week to talk with me about shows. Of course, yeah, it's been really fun. I mean, I get to catch up with you since, and I haven't I haven't seen you in like almost I, a year, right? Oh, I mean, uh, I, saw I went you to visit in last the summer. summer. Right, yeah. that's right, and it's almost. I mean, you know, spring. So we're just one good. season away from one year anniversary. It's the last time I, you know, I saw you. So yeah. Well, hopefully, I get to see you again soon. Um, yeah, this summer I should be, you know, uh, making my way back there. I, I don't know what happens with Berkeley in the fall, but uh, I know that I'll be there sometime this year. And I, you know, I plan to drive, so I'll drive by the uh, New York City, and I'll meet you there. So that'll be fun. Yeah. That makes me happy. My mom is going to be thrilled. Uh, oh, yeah. Some. Well, you know, let me know what I can bring from LA for you and your mom. So I would love to. Can you that. bring us some New York bagels? Because according to the New York Times, LA has better bagels than we do. Oh, I read about that. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. I'll do that. <laughs> I read that and I was like, you must be joking. Anyway, um, Nora, where can people find you online if you would like them to find you? Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, People can certainly uh, reach me through Instagram. It's probably the most active so far. Um, I'm happy to provide my Instagram name probably in the bio or in some. It's it's my name, Snoor underscore Falevi underscore Pratama. And I, I post uh, some music and stuff, the updates that I've been up to uh, on there. Um, yeah, so that's the best way, I think. Absolutely. Very worthwhile. If you enjoyed his dulcet tones, you'll enjoy his dulcet music. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, guys, rate, review, subscribe. Algorithms, we got to keep bending over for them. And we like it just a little bit. Make sure to check us out next week when we get to the Sondheim musical that took 50 years to get here Saturday night. Uh, and we'll see how that turns out. Uh, in the meanwhile, have a great week, everybody. And let's think, who would be a good diva that's connected to passion that we can close out on? Oh, you know what? Let's go for broke. The London cast, we're going to do Miss Maria Friedman, oh. our, our London Fosca. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Take us away, Miss Maria. Bye. Bye. Decision. Never
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.